morning. Uh, so let's turn to our Bibles, the Word of God, in John chapter 2, and read today's passage from verses 1 uh, to 12. John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples and there they stayed for a few days. Amen. May God's word uh, touch our hearts uh, today. There was a wedding, and it was a glorious day. And uh, it wasn't glorious because the sun shone. And it wasn't glorious uh, because of friends and families and uh, the happiness of the occasion. It was a glorious day because that's the word that's used in verse number 11 of our reading, it was a glorious day because Christ was there and Jesus, he demonstrated his glory. And the glory of Christ spilled over and affected everybody else uh, who was present. It was the very first of the miracles that Jesus performed to do. Remarkable when you think about it, especially when you come to the end of John's Gospel and it says that Jesus did so many things that you know the world could hardly contain them. John only selects seven miracles uh, to make his point. This is the very first of all the miracles. And, and there's something quite touching about it, actually, because it's almost, uh, it's almost like a private miracle. You know, it's, it's a local homespun miracle. It's not out on the public stage. It's not up in Jerusalem. It's away up in the backwaters. It's in Cana, up in Galilee, one of these little rural villages, just down the road from Nazareth, where Jesus himself had been raised and brought up. It's the place where Nathaniel, who we spoke about last week, who came to Christ, that's where he came from. Everybody would have known everybody. You know, this young couple were there. And in that particular setting, in their wedding, that was the place for the benefit of the people who knew him, 
for his neighbors and everybody else, Jesus chose to perform this miracle, or should I say sign, because that's the word that deliberately is chosen here by John. Yes, it was a miracle, but this miracle was a sign. It's almost as if there was a flashing light that for the very first time began to shine before the people. And really, this was a sign that should have allowed them to reach a conclusion about what the Lord Jesus was doing and what it was saying about him and who he was. It was demonstrating that he is the Son of God. That is the conclusion of the entire book, as Brian was telling us at the start. You know, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And by believing, you might have life through his name. So, as we read this, as we think about this, remember, there are flashing lights. This is the first sign that demonstrates that Jesus is the Son of God. And it says here that Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. Now, I don't know how it worked, really, in those days. Uh, did the young couple, who, of course, whose names we don't know anything about, did they sit down, as normally happens these days, and they had decided on their invitation cards what color they were going to be, whether it fitted with the bridesmaids' dresses, and, uh, and they wrote their invitations out specifically, deliberately, choosing, wanting Jesus to be invited to their wedding and to be part of their big day. Well, he was invited uh, to the wedding. And in that invitation made all the difference. It was the best decision almost that this young couple um, had ever made. I wonder, you know, if I can apply this point this morning. You know, for all of us, making a conscious, deliberate decision to invite Christ into our lives. Not just to be part of our lives, not just to be one of many in our lives, not to share it with all the other things that we've allowed to come in as part of our lives, but to deliberately invite the Son of God to be at the heart and at the center and at the core of our lives. You know, that, that is one of the ways, really, that the Bible describes how we should respond appropriately to Christ. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12 of John's Gospel says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to be called the children of God. Have we received Christ deliberately into the very heart of our lives and invited him to be our savior and our master you know it is possible to think that we've done that and for christ actually to be outside of our lives that, that's entirely possible for individuals and that in fact is entirely possible for churches actually to be in that situation because that picture is painted uh, in the last book of the Bible, as far as a particular church at Laodicea is concerned. You know, there's so much going on in that place. Big reputation, you know, plenty of wealth. And yet the description is given of that particular church that Christ was on the outside. 
And in fact, he's pictured as standing at the door of the church, knocking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, nobody knew. Nobody realized. It wasn't until Christ himself pointed it out that they became aware of the fact that Christ was not inside at all. And the great tragedy of life is that there are many people and many churches that believe that Christ is there and he's not at all. And it's for us, as we think about a passage like this one, to think about our response in receiving Christ, of asking Christ to take over the core of our hearts that we might follow and find him, as we were pointing out last week. And in doing that, it's the, it's the greatest thing of all. The receiving of Christ. You know, that is only one way in which, in, in a sense, the, re- the response to Christ can be um, described. It can also be described in other ways. It can be described as calling upon him uh, in times of trouble. In difficulty, particularly the greatest difficulty of all, which Scripture always brings us back to, which is the tragedy of the situation of our sin before God. We must never forget that. We must never just distill everything down to the practicalities of everyday life. The greatest need that we have, the greatest predicament, is the one uh, of our sin before God, our breaking of His commandments. And in receiving Him, there are other ways that we can express that. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will answer you. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And whether it is in that way, or whether it's in a simple childlike receiving of Christ, inviting him into your heart, it is the same thing. It is the way that we receive Christ that is important. By by inviting Christ to their wedding and giving him this invitation, and in his attendance there, Christ is confirming and he's blessing the whole institution of marriage. It's often said at marriage ceremonies that Christ blessed the marriage at Cana in Galilee. And he's, and he's blessing the whole idea and concept of God-ordained marriage as it was laid out at the beginning in the book of Genesis when, when God oversaw that very first marriage of Adam and of Eve. And that is still the case. And in this day and age when things are being rewritten and redefined, it is important for us to come to the Bible and remember that biblical marriage in its true definition is one man and one wife, one woman for life. But there was something that was a problem. Jesus' mother almost kind of whispers this in the background. No doubt there's lots of whispering and raised eyebrows when they recognize that the wine has run out uh, and that it's all gone. What, a, what a, an embarrassment, a potential embarrassment as far as this family and young couple uh, are, con- are, are, are concerned. And Mary turns to Jesus in this situation. Interesting point here, actually. Joseph is not mentioned at all in this incident. And in fact, when you go down to verse 12 at the very end, it talks about his mother and his brothers, but there's no mention of Joseph. And the implication really is that Joseph had died. And so, therefore, Mary is doing what she had often done. You know, Jesus as her firstborn. She would have turned to him. 
you know, in the absence of Joseph, she would have turned to him for, for, for help in, in, in situations. And, and she does this here, and she's got this sense that he will handle it, that he will be able to take care of it. Now, it's interesting the way that he responds here. I think there are a lot of smiles behind here in the way that this conversation goes. I don't think this is a harsh thing at all. I can imagine smiles from both sides as the conversation goes. Why do you involve me? You know, what's this got to do with me? Why is this relevant to me today? You know, the wine has run out and, you know, uh, and my hour hasn't come. Now, that's interesting. You know, because frequently Jesus takes this point. In fact, it wasn't long after this when he, after being away, had come back to his own home area. And uh, they weren't too happy with what he said on that occasion. And uh, they were going to push him over the brow of the hill of Nazareth. And it says that he walked through the middle of the crowd because his hour had not yet come. And this, this point comes up a lot. And in the life of Jesus, he is constantly aware of and moving towards what he refers to as his hour. And that actually refers to his death upon the cross. You know, and eventually he will say, and now is the time. Now is the hour. This is the hour. You know, this was constantly his focus. It was always his objective that everything that he was doing was leading up to this climax and this culmination. This was the peak of his coming into the world. And he's, he's aware of it even at this point on the first time that he performs a miracle. He's still aware that this is just the start of a build-up to, to the hour. And of course, it's great for us to always be reminded about that, that at the core of everything that we preach from the Word of God, the, the, the core event from beginning to end, even when we're talking to the children about Joshua and Gideon and others, Everything is leading up to the pivotal point when the Son of God comes. That hour. Just think about that moment of all the minutes and hours that have been part of human history. There is actually only one hour. His hour. My hour. The key hour in the history of the world when the Lord Jesus gives himself as a sacrifice to deal with the issue, the awful issue of human sinfulness and how that can be dealt with. And he's, he's moving towards that great hour. Well, as I say, I think there are some smiles here and I think this is continued when in verse number 5 his mother says to the servants, turns to them, she almost thinks, well, there is an agreement here. He's promised that he'll help and uh, whatever he says to you, just do that. You know, whatever he says to you, just, just do that. She's got complete confidence in him. And she gives great advice. Everything's in his hands. He can handle it. All you need to do is comply. Just go along with whatever he says. I've got complete trust in him. Whatever he says, go along with it. Just, just do it. You know, that's a fantastic point for us to think about this morning. If ever there was a point, you know, that needs to be impressed on all of our hearts, it's this one. You know, whatever Christ says, what's the response? Just do it. Just do it. You know, obedience 
It lies at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. You know, if you love me, do you love me? Well, you will obey my commandments. You know, and so we're all challenged by this. Here, here is the word of God. We've had it read, so much in it, for our blessing, for our guidance, that will help us, that's for our good. And we often resist, and we want to do our own thing, and we listen to so many different voices, and, you know, we're not so sure about certain things. And, but here is what we're told. Whatever he says, just, just do it. And so the challenge is, is there a particular area in our lives that we're aware of is actually in, in contradiction to God's word? Something I'm involved in, or something I should be doing, and I know I should be doing it, and I'm not. You know, whatever he says, he's saying to you, whatever he says to you and to me, you know, we need to do it. It's not enough, as I was saying last Sunday night, it's not enough to be challenged by God's word. We need to be changed by God's word. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, it's this little kind of detail that's made here in verse 6, that there were these massive six stone water jars uh, that are standing. You know, each of them able to hold uh, from 20 to 30 gallons so potentially that's, what, 180 gallons? Did I do my sums right? 690 liters. Massive amount of water that can be held in these ceremonial washing stone jars. Now, why were they there, by the way? Now, it wasn't for hygiene purposes. The reason that they washed their hands was not because they'd come from the fields, you know, they were scared they were going to get some kind of DNV uh, because they hadn't washed their hands before they had their breakfast. It wasn't because of that. It was ceremonial washing. You know, they believed, and the Pharisees, the religious instructors, perpetrated this whole thing, that, you know, defilement, you know, ceremonial defilement, if I touched a pot or I touched anything, that maybe some sinner had touched, or some Gentile perished the thought, you know, I could be contaminated by that in a ceremonial sense. And they, you know, they didn't want that time. They were always washing their hands. And Jesus later on was to really take that point head on. You know, and he said to them on one occasion, you know, you've got to realize, you guys, that being contaminated, being polluted, being unclean, it's not, it's not some superficial thing. It's not, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man. That's not the point. It's what comes out of a person's heart that defiles them. You know, it's all the evil that is resident in our own hearts. That's the thing that causes contamination before God. And that's what we need cleansed from. So you think about it. Here they are with their 690 liters of water for one occasion. Because of the fear of contaminating, I need to be cleansed. 690 liters, I need to be cleansed, I need to be washed. And Jesus is saying to you, it's deep cleaning you need. Heart cleaning that we all need. And religion is a very dangerously deceptive thing. Because it can give the impression that it's dealing with the issues. And I'm being cleansed and kept right. Jesus points out, 
it's only surface deep. We need the heart to be cleansed because the heart is the problem. And the only thing that cleanses, of course, is the blood of Christ. It's the death of Christ and the effects of that death that reached down because he, he dealt with the deepest sin when he personally became accountable for that upon the cross and he consciously walked through that that my sin at its deepest heart level could be cleansed. More effective than 690 liters of water is the effect of the blood of Christ on my heart and yours. That's just a little kind of aside. So he gives instructions relating to these pots to the servants. And he says to them, first of all, fill the jars, and they do that right up to the brim. And then he tells them, so draw some of it out, take some of it out, and take it to the master of the banquet. Now, for me, in this particular part of the incident, there is a tremendous example of what faith is. And of course, faith is a central thing in our response to God's word. You know, in fact, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You know, we can't please God at all unless we have faith, belief in him. So you think about the situation that these guys were placed in. They know that this is water. They know that they've been asked to take water and pour it out into the master of the banquet's cup. And I can just imagine the beads of sweat, you know, forming on their brow because they are potentially putting themselves into an embarrassing situation. You know, what's the man going to see when he, when he takes a drink of, of the puddle water or whatever it is that's in there? And, uh, but they believe. They take Christ at his word. They remember what Mary had said, whatever he says. Do it, he will be able to handle this. And they take Christ at his word, although it doesn't make sense to them, and although they can't see how this is going to happen, how it's going to take place, they are prepared to go forward with it. And of course, the, the great miracle is that they notice that the water is, is changed into, into wine. Now, you, you, I think you can see what I mean by that being a, an example of faith. You know, God speaks to us. He speaks to us, you know, fundamentally about the whole issue of responding to Christ. But for believers, he speaks to us about a whole range of things as far as living for him and of serving him and of progressing and of moving forward and of doing work for Christ. And sometimes, you know, we, we are not so sure about it. And at a natural level, it doesn't entirely seem to make sense. And maybe there's somebody here and God is placing a burden on your heart about serving him somewhere or another. And, and you're not entirely sure about it at all. And, and God's word, of course, is a, is a lamp to our feet. And what that really means is sometimes that's, that's all that God gives us. He doesn't allow us to see the further stretches. He gives us enough light for one step at a time so that we will have faith in him. And that's what these men discovered. Just one step, 
one act of faith at a time. But it goes, it goes. And the water is changed to wine. And we, we have to learn sometimes to have faith in God that is better than understanding the reason why. And faith is not an absolute leap in the dark. You know, there is a basis to it all. But it does involve at times moving forward in trust on what God says. Not rashness, but in, on the basis of what God has, has said. And, well, it's interesting, isn't it, to see what the, the master of the banquet says after tasting this. He says, you know, this is the best. Uh, this is better than the stuff you dished out before. The wedding turned out better than was expected. You know, wine in Bible times is often used as a symbol of joy, symbol of happiness. You know, as far as this occasion was concerned, you know, the joy had run out. Everything was going flat. It was as though the, the music had ground to a halt and the conversation had suddenly become silent and everything just was becoming dead. And of course, Jesus is introduced into the situation and he changes water into wine. You know, it's something symbolic about this. Something that's true of us today, a message for us. You know, that the ordinary water of life. You know, Christ will change it into wine. He still can do that. You know, in that sense, the best stuff, it comes through Christ. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly, have it to the full, have eternal life, the life of God himself that, that deals with my sin and delivers joy, the joy of forgiveness and of the hope of being in God's presence one day the best stuff let's not be taken in look around us you know at the at the anxieties and at the empty eyes of our world you know the wine is not there the best is here with Christ you've kept the best until last and he can change all of our lives. You know, there's another contrast that's used elsewhere in the scripture which says that he can give beauty for ashes. Changes ashes. If you feel that your dreams and your life is turning to ash, he can change that to something beautiful. He still does that kind of thing. That, that is part of the symbolism and the message of, of this um, incident. Interestingly, um, not that I'm a big expert on this, but um, what is the best wine? The best wine is old wine. You know, if you get some kind of whatever it is, I was nearly going to say something, but I think that's a cheese rather than a wine I was going to mention. <laughs> uh, um, you know, you get something that goes back to some cellar in France in the 1500s and it's worth a lot of money and it's the, it's the best of wine because it's, it's, it's been allowed to settle over all these years. Now, instantaneously, just like that, Jesus made the best wine. He made wine a hundred years old or more, like that. 
The effect that Christ can have on our lives as he changes them is not some superficial thing. It's a deep, profound, real thing. Just like he did with this wine. And what does it say? As the whole thing is summed up. Verse number 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And it was a glorious day. I mean, initially, only the servants knew about this. But, of course, word got out. And everybody suddenly realized what had gone on, what had taken place, and who was responsible for it. And it was a glorious day. And it was the glory of Christ that made it a glorious day. And what, what makes up the glory of Christ? How, how do we define that? Well, his miraculous power was seen in what he was able to do, his ability. It was also his kindness and his concern in this country wedding. There was his ability to bring joy there is the focus on, on his hour. There is his identity that's now being increasingly revealed as, as the Son of God. Now it's for us to really think about this, the glory of Christ. You know, there's, there, there is his essential glory, as John talked about in his prologue. You know who he is the Word who became flesh. There is his moral glory, the way he conducted himself, as far as his sinlessness and his perfection was concerned. There is something absolutely glorious about Christ in every sense. And that is who is presented to us by John today in the second chapter of his Gospel. And the most glorious thing of all the thing that sums it up, that takes all these points that I've mentioned and brings it all to a conclusion and its full expression, the standout point, is when Christ dies on the cross, demonstrating his love for humanity. That is the glory of Christ. And it's for us to, to see that glory. And today could be a glorious day for all of us. You know, despite the rain tipping it down, despite it being a bit grey and dark, you know, this could be a glorious day for all of us if we, as John is trying to point us to, have belief like the disciples did. His disciples believed in him for belief in Christ, who, who doesn't just change water into wine doesn't just change emptiness to joy. Changes hearts. Changes eternal destinations if we have faith in him. There is a wee postscript, actually, to this story. You know, it mentions his brothers in verse 12. Despite all this, despite what happened and what they witnessed, you know, his brothers didn't believe in him at this point. I mean, there were a couple of occasions when they thought, and it quotes, he was out of his mind. And they came to take custody, to take charge of him. Remarkable, unbelievable. Despite all of this, they still did not believe. And that is possible today, even for us. To hear all of this, to think about it, and still not really believe. 
Let's make this a glorious day if we see the glory of Christ and believe in him. Now we're going to sing a hymn at this point. Draw me close to the cross. Just before it's played, I'll just have a brief prayer. Lord, thank you for the children who are joining us now. We pray a blessing upon what they've learned and what we have learned too. Impress it on all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.